0: The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. Now, something that I've shared with the church family before is that in my early middle school, kind of early high school years, I was very much in the punk rock ska scene. Somebody familiar with that? We got we got one of these from Paige here in the back. We got it, yeah, there we go. So if you're not familiar, punk rock is just it's just like garbage cans. It's just like smashing together, and ska is like that plus trumpets. And it was really for whatever reason, it was like really really a thing in the late '90s and early 2000s. And like I've shared before, I was very much kind of into that scene. There was a whole, like, attire that went with it. You would grow your sideburns really long. I couldn't grow sideburns then. But if I, if I could have, I would have grown my sideburns really long. You wore cut-off jorts. You wore Converse Chuck Taylors, that kind of thing. And then you went to punk rock shows, and you, you did mosh pits together. Is anybody familiar with a, a mosh pit? It's basically just, yeah, just people angrily, violently smashing into each other and punching one another. And for, and for some reason, I was totally into that scene. Now, about seven years ago, uh, a couple of my buddies from that time in life, a guy named John and a guy named Travis, they reach out to me and they say, hey, I know we're like, you know, right at 30, you know, I, I know that our bodies, you know, as we just said, are like breaking down and expiring, but this particular band, Five Iron Frenzy, is playing in Atlanta in a couple of weeks. And so, you better believe that my wife bought me Five Iron Frenzy tickets to go see... Five Iron Frenzy perform in Atlanta just a handful of years ago. Now, I remember as we were rolling into this concert, we were driving in. The concert started at 9 p.m., so we're like, already, like, come on, how long is this thing going to actually be? <laughs> we, we, we get to the concert, and one of the best parts is, like, you look at the parking lot, and what used to be, you know, broken down Honda Accords, it's now full of Honda Odysseys that, like, fill the parking lot, right? <laughs> A bunch of minivans. We get into the, we get into the, the concert venue, and Five Arm Frenzy is like doing their thing, and there's people moshing. But this time, instead of like a normal mosh pit, it's like five, 10 seconds, and everybody kind of collectively agrees <laughs> to get their breath. <sighs> and then they start moshing once again. And when, when I got in there, I was like, I'm too old for this. And so I was kind of standing at the back. And then as the show went on, I kind of made my way forward. Show went on, I made, made my way forward. By the end of the night, I'm like head to toe, just dripping with sweat, going nuts with my friends John and Travis. But the best part about this concert was at one point during the show, I'm looking around, you know, I'm having the, the time of my life, thinking that I don't know a soul who's going to be at this concert. I, I don't know, a, no, nobody is going to know. The church family's never going to know that I'm moshing, you know, to the glory of Jesus' name. I, I, I look around, and my eyes, I lock eyes with a fellow pastor friend who pastors in upstate South Carolina. We look at each other, and for a moment we have... Kind of across the room, across the crowd, this moment of recognition, and we don't know, like, should I be excited to discover you here? <laughs> or should I be, you know, ashamed to have been found out to be moshing at this show that is this old, dried-up band for old, dried-up people? In that moment, what we had was this kind of touch point this mutual recognition, this mutual realization, we might say, that that he and I were at the same place in the same boat. And and since that day, actually, we kind of developed a little bit of a bond kind of based on the fact that we discovered that we both were in that scene, you know, in the early 2000s. It's been something that even when we see each other now, we talk about, hey, did you hear they're coming out with a new album? I can't believe they're still alive and they're still making music, but yes, they're still doing it. There is power and mutual recognition. And actually, what we're going to see in our passage today, as the gospel advances, as the gospel extends beyond the boundaries of just the Jewish nation and gets out of Jerusalem and begins to take root in places like Judea and Samaria and in Caesarea, what we'll see today is we have this moment of two characters who come from completely different worlds, who should have absolutely nothing in common, find themselves locking eyes and recognizing each other mutually as brothers, both belonging To Jesus. Now, the book of Acts, we've said, is a book that's all about advance. It's about God creating and commissioning a people by his spirit who go about making Jesus known. In Acts chapter 1, it opens just weeks after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. There, Jesus promises that the Holy Spirit is going to come out of heaven, and it's going to empower his people to go spread the gospel amongst the nations. In Acts chapter 2, that's exactly what takes place. The Spirit descends from heaven. It settles on God's people. They begin speaking in tongues and doing miraculous things, and the gospel goes out with them. In Acts 3 through 7, we've seen the advance of the church over and through and under and beyond every obstacle in the early days in Jerusalem. Then in Acts chapter 8 and 10, we see that the gospel is expanding into the surrounding regions. And the passage today is the third of three key encounters, again, where we see two individuals realizing that they have a mutual brotherhood in Christ. Let's look at Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 1. At Caesarea, there is a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who, uh, who attended him, and having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, in the previous section, what we saw was Peter uh, going about in the regions, performing these miracles that are very reminiscent of what Jesus did. And what we said as we were reading that passage is it reminds us that Jesus' ministry continues in us. And so Peter is serving like Jesus, and he's performing these miracles that very much rhyme with the, the, the miracles that... Jesus had performed before him, and apparently, word had begun to spread that Peter was located in this town. And In verse 1, we're told that in Caesarea, this port city just a few miles from Joppa, there was a man named Cornelius, a military man, a well-to-do, established, highly regarded and important figure, Cornelius. And In verse 2, we're told that he's a devout man, that he feared God with all his household. He, He feared the Lord, and he raised up those in his household also to fear the Lord. We're told that he gives alms generously to the poor, that he prays continually to God. And what we discover is that Cornelius is what's called a Gentile god A Gentile God-fear. Much like the Ethiopian eunuch we saw in chapter eight. Cornelius was someone who was not ethnically Jewish, but he worshiped Israel's God. He gave in the name of Israel's God. He prayed at the traditional Jewish times of prayer. He even likely attended synagogue. But like the eunuch, and like we said in chapter eight, This was an individual who could never fully participate in the covenant life of the people of Israel. Why? Because he was a Gentile. Because the law restricted his access into the fullness of covenant participation. But not only that, there was also these extra-biblical laws that had kind of calcified and like attached itself like barnacles to the law. And they were especially stringent against Gentiles. For example, in verse 28 of this passage, Peter's going to say that he can't even visit with a Gentile, which isn't strictly true. That was probably rabbinic teaching that, like barnacles, had kind of attached itself to the law. So Cornelius is this devout man. He's, a, he's, a, he's one who fears Israel's God, and then Israel's God appears to him in the form of an angel and says, call for a man called Peter. Verse 9, the next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, so Cornelius's folks are on their journey. They're making their way to the city to go find Peter. Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And Peter became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance, and he saw the heavens opened, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time. God, uh, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at heaven at once. How many of you are not originally from the state of South Carolina? Okay, that's a fair amount of you. All right, the rest of you, if you are from the state of South Carolina, raise your hand. All right, so we have a task before us, friends. In our midst, we have people who come from inferior barbecue states. <laughs> and one of my callings in life, and one of the uh, great you know, joys that I have in, in my position is to expose people to good barbecue, and specifically expose people to mustard-based barbecue sauce. Anybody a fan of mustard-based barbecue sauce? You know, there's people, there's people in our body, I won't name them, but they come from states where they make barbecue sauce out of mayonnaise. Have you heard about this? Some people make it out of vinegar, some people make it out of mayonnaise. We need, to, we need to ensure that we are doing our duty as Christian brothers and sisters to expose these folks to mustard-based barbecue sauce. Now, here's the reason I bring this up. Because in Acts chapter 10, the Lord in his grace announces that barbecue and hot dogs and pork ribs are to be consumed to his glory. But, but there's another reason that I bring this up. It's actually food is an incredibly culturally specific thing, right? Like even in, in joking about barbecue sauce and the different sort of regions that take on certain different barbecue sauces and make the mistake of making it with something other than mustard. The thing that we're identifying there is that cultures have very thick traditions surrounding their food. And oftentimes, a people very much relate to the food that they consume. You have habits, and, and you have holidays, and you have customs that are built out where, where you eat certain foods as certain people groups. You know, one thing that I've shared up here before is that we grew up eating cantaloupe with white gravy, and I thought that was very interesting. And then I married my wife, whose family comes from the Midwest, and she's like, that is, that is not a thing anywhere else on planet Earth, Right? People have very specific food customs. And actually, what we're seeing here is in a vision, the Lord appears to Peter, and he's acknowledging the fact that the Lord has given to the people of Israel very specific food customs. I mean, even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you probably at least know that Jewish people don't eat things like pork. But there are are laws that restrict the things that Jewish people eat. The reason is is that God commanded the nation of Israel to be a holy people. They were not to eat what was called unclean f- foods. The the old covenant required that. Not because God is a withholding God who has anything against pork, that he has anything against eating certain meats, but rather because God wanted his people to be set apart. Even in their customs, he wanted his people to be different, set apart. They were going to eat certain foods and that was representative of the of the of the uh, the, the sort of commitment that Israel was to have to their God and to not allow themselves to be syncretized or to let the, 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 the borders of the nation bleed with other nations. Peter has this vision. It says that the sheet descends by, by, by its four corners, something like a sheet descends, and on that sheet we're told that there are all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there's a voice of the Lord who says to Peter, "'Kill and eat.'" It's interesting that Peter says, Lord, here. It's that he's probably recognizing the voice of Jesus speaking to him. And when he sees this vision, he actually responds, how? By saying, no, I, I mean, I'm, I'm a faithful Jew. I have always observed these customs. I can't do this. I can't eat these unclean things. In fact, he says, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. Again, unclean food was was impermissible for Jews. And one when, when commentator, as I was reading this week made the point that this created real social problems when it came to the relationship between Jews and Gentiles. It limited the menu that the Jews could eat from, but it also limited how the food could be prepared. And so things like table fellowship, you know, such a rich opportunity for meeting people, was inhibited by these food laws. So the Lord appears to Peter and says, kill and eat. And the passage tells us here in the next verse that Peter is left absolutely perplexed as to the meaning of what's taken place. Look at verse 17. Now, while Peter was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean, behold, the men who were sent by Cornelius, having made inquiry for Simon's house, stood at the gate and called out to ask whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. So Peter sees the vision, and he doesn't understand what the vision is intended to mean. He probably thinks about Jesus' teaching on the law. He probably remembers in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Maybe Peter's beginning to piece together that the new covenant comes to to fulfill and and, and, in a way supplant the old covenant. Maybe Peter's beginning to put these pieces together, but we're told that he's inwardly perplexed. One thing that I have always loved about Peter, and this is, as we study the Gospel of Matthew, this is something that we observed, was that Peter was a bit of a disciple who was always on his way. He was very much an an incomplete project, we might say. Peter. Peter. What's great about Peter is he is the founder of the church in many respects. He's the one who leads the early apostles, and yet we're told that Peter is a disciple who is often growing and becoming and growing and becoming. And that's encouraging for us as we read through Acts and as we see Peter growing and becoming and growing and becoming. It, It reminds us that it's okay that we are disciples on the way, that we are growing and becoming and growing and becoming ourselves. Verse 19, let's keep reading. And while Peter was pondering the vision, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. Rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation, for I have sent them. And Peter went down to the men and said, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for your coming? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, an upright and God-fearing man, who was well spoken of by the whole Jewish nation, was directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and to hear what you have to say. So he invited them in to be his guests. Something we've seen in the previous chapters leading up to this is this kind of matchmaking that the Lord has undertaken over the last few chapters. In chapter 8, we see Philip uh, directed by the Spirit to to be matchmade with the Ethiopian eunuch. We see in Saul's conversion, Saul is given a a vision and he's told to go to see Ananias and Ananias is told that he's going to see Saul and they're matchmade and directed to come together. And much like those instances, we have something similar taking place here. The Lord gives a vision to Peter, and he gives a vision or a call to Cornelius, and he encourages them to come together. It's almost as if God doesn't intend the full picture to be complete until they're sitting eye to eye. Keep reading. The next day, Peter rose and went away with them, and some of his brothers from Joppa accompanied them. And on the following day, they entered Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and had called them together, his relatives and close friends. When Peter entered, Cornelius met him and fell down on his feet and worshiped him. But Peter lifted him up saying, stand up, I too am a man. And as he walked with him, he went in and found many persons that, are, that were gathered there. So Peter takes some of his brothers. He arrives at Cornelius' house. Cornelius is expectant. We're told that he's gathered relatives and close friends. And verse 27, Cornelius is very expectant. You know, what's, what's Peter going to say? What's, the, the Lord told me to call Peter. Peter's here. You know, what's going to happen? Verse 28, and Peter Having had a revelation, he said to them, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of other nation. But watch this. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Peter begins to piece together what the meaning of his vision was. That it wasn't about food strictly, though it was about food in one sense. The vision was about people. I should not call any person common or unclean. Verse 29. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. Verse 30. Cornelius said, four days ago, about this hour, I was praying in my house at the ninth hour. And behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging in the house of Simon a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you have been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you have been commanded by the Lord. Here's Peter's response to that, verse 34. So Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. Do you hear what Peter's saying? receiving this vision and seeing the food being let down and, and Peter being told to kill and eat, Peter understands what the Lord intends to say to him through this vision. By bringing him to Cornelius, by matchmaking Peter and this Gentile, Peter realizes that God shows no partiality. Verse 35, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us, who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Here's the light bulb finally going off for Peter. Peter. Finally, Peter realizes that the kingdom is for all peoples, that God shows no partiality, that Jesus is Lord over all nations, that the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down in Christ, that Jew and Gentile are no longer separated, that Jew and Gentile can now be incorporated together in Christ. In verse 43, he says, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. This is something we've seen dozens of times up to this point in the book of Acts, that everyone who calls on Jesus will be saved. And we cannot overstate how much of a game changer this is, that Jesus came to save all peoples, not just the Jewish nation. The promises were for Israel. The Messiah was Israel's king, and it has now been opened up for everyone. In Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost, Peter quotes the prophet Joel in Joel 2. Acts 2.17 In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. All people, regardless of your color or your ethnicity or your your social status or your background, regardless of your religious past previous to this, all people can receive the spirit. In verse 21, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. All people can now pronounce Jesus to be Lord of their lives. And Peter says, God shows no partiality. This I was thinking about this week. That is, on the one hand, incredibly comforting and incredibly discomforting. That God shows no partiality. It's very unsettling when you think about it. Because it's unsettling because it means that none of us have any inherent advantages over anybody else when it comes to our stance before God and our status before God. It's like you might be really well respected in your community. You might be really, really wealthy. You might be the most likable person in the world. But that has zero bearing on your stance before God. That's discomforting. But it's also really comforting because that means no one has any inherent advantages when it concerns their status before God. Not even the Jews, Peter realizes. Not even his ethnic identity as a Jewish man gave him a leg up on the Gentiles. As we think about... The, the, the historical gush i mean this is this is a monumental shift in the history of the world that's taking place here what this means for us is that you and i i mean we are gentiles the the vast majority of us are gentiles it means you and i could be included into the promises of god by the blood of jesus it's like forget the ethnic dynamics at play like it, we often don't we're not often, not always attuned to like the historical reality of what the scriptures are saying. When the Bible says Gentile, it means you and it means me. Peter realizes in this vision that, it is, it is, that our access to God and the Messiah is made possible now through Christ. God has welcomed us in, Gentiles. We can sing, Father Abraham had many sons because we are his children, not by blood, but by faith. The King and Messiah of the Jewish people is the King and the Messiah of the whole world. And God shows no partiality. Verse 44. While Peter was still saying these things, as Peter is literally preaching, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word, and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. This is the Gentile Pentecost. The Holy Spirit falling on them just as it did the Jews. And I love Peter's response here in verse 46. For they were hearing them speaking in in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked him to remain for some days. Peter realizes what's taking place. The Holy Spirit has fallen on them just like he fell on us. Who are we to think we can withhold baptism from these folks who have received the Spirit? Be baptized. Follow Christ. You, you, you are our brothers and sisters in Christ. What prevents these people from being baptized? Nothing. This is such a, a great passage to me. I mean, one of the things that's so striking to me, one commentator pointed this out, is how the Lord could have given Peter the fullness of the vision day one. It's like when Peter's napping on the roof when his lunch is being prepared and he falls into the trance, God could have given him the whole picture right there, just delivered it on a platter. He could have done the same thing for Cornelius, just made it really clear. Here's the message, Jesus is your Messiah too. But that's not what God chooses to do. What God chooses to do is to give Peter 50% of the vision, and Cornelius, 50% of the vision, and to bring them together. Why? So that they could look each other in the eye and have a mutual recognition that you belong to Christ and that I belong to Christ. And we are brothers because God shows no partiality. The passage is about Peter and Cornelius realizing that in Christ they are brothers. They have every reason to be at odds. Every reason. Different customs and cultural barriers, different lives altogether. Cornelius was wealthy. He was a highly regarded Roman leader. Who was he to listen to a peasant fisherman? Peter was an apostle, a devout, lifelong Jew. Why go to this Gentile Roman soldier? I mean, a Roman soldier was a symbol of everything that the Jews hated. But here's what's incredibly clear. God has brought them together, and the way God does it is by graciously nudging them together into a kind of mutual recognition as one, of one another as brother. I love this detail in verse 48. Verse 28, Peter says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. And then in verse 48, then they asked Peter to remain for some days. And he did. God has brought them together. And the way God has done it is by graciously nudging them into mutual recognition as brother. Isn't this Exactly what's true of us every time we come together to worship Jesus as a church family. You know, one of the things that we're often asked about is the order of our worship service. You know, maybe you come from a more liturgical tradition or, or maybe you don't. And maybe you've had questions about why we do a call to worship and a confession of sin, assurance of pardon, and then a welcome of your neighbor. And the reason is, is because God shows no partiality. We, as we come in here to gather together, we read a scripture that invites everyone with ears to hear, come worship God. We, call, we, we all come on the same level playing field. God is the one who calls us. We have no advantages here. Each of us needs to confess our sin. We have no advantages here. Each of us is, a, is in need of forgiveness and, and carry sins into this room that need to be forgiven by the blood of Jesus. We receive an assurance of pardon, and we remind ourselves that each of us there's, there's no advantages here, that each of us are forgiven in Christ, that each of us required Jesus' execution, that we are forgiven by the blood of Jesus. And then, after we receive an assurance of pardon, what do we do Sunday after Sunday after Sunday? We look around the room, and we acknowledge one another as brother and sister in Christ. It is a built-in, weekly, mutual recognition that we belong together in Christ. We look across the room, and our eyes, lock eyes with somebody, and we remember, that is my brother, or that is my sister. Not by flesh, but by the blood of Jesus. They've been given the Spirit just like me. They've been forgiven, just like me. They've been baptized, just like me. They've taken the bread and the wine, just like me. We look around the room, and there's mutual recognition. You're here, too. I'm here. We're here together as brothers and sisters who belong together in Christ. It's so much better than just a niche interest like punk rock or ska. We look across the room, and we find one another in the Lord Jesus. God shows no partiality. And that's actually the foundation of our ability to extend hospitality. God's non partiality is the foundation of our mutual welcome as a church we say that our values are that, that we're simple we're rooted and we're personal what we mean by that is we want to be a church that's simple we just want to be uh, we, we're not flashy we're not we're not going to do the the big kind of grand flashy things we're a church that's going to be straightforward and it's going to be about worshiping the lord and loving our neighbors we just want to be a simple church we're a church that's rooted we want to have a sense of place like we, we want to be serious about where god has put us as a church family but we also want to be a church that's personal. We want to take every person seriously. We we want to recognize that we have kinship in Christ. That's for real, that the the Lord has given each of us to each of us as a church family. One of the things that I'm most proud of about our church is there is a kind of freaky commitment to one another. It's fantastic. One of the things that people always talk about is how incredibly uh, rich the community is here at Ridgewood Church. But a question specific to this moment in the life of our church as we think about that is this. Will the building change any of that? Our commitment to one another, will the building change our culture and our value as a church family to be personal? Will the building wall us off? Will it make us ingrown? Will the building have an insulating and isolating effect? Will we be distant and standoffish? Will will we be concerned more with maintaining the space and being prim and proper? Or will these four walls make us more of who we are? Will it amplify our kinship? Will it amplify our hospitality? Will it amplify our willingness to embrace newcomers? It's my prayer that just as Peter says in this passage that God shows no partiality, that God's non-partiality would motivate our hospitality, that it would be the foundation of our welcome for any and all who walk through our doors. And for me, as I was reading Peter's words here in Acts 10, I could not help but think of James chapter 2, where James seems to acknowledge that God shows no partiality to us and that has an effect on our actions. Just hear these words from James chapter 2, writing a few years after the book of Acts. He says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... And a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. If you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in the good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. God shows no partiality. He welcomes us. He welcomes you. He welcomes me when we were not deserving of welcome. And the question is, will that have a downstream effect on us? Will it do the same thing for us? Will this building be an occasion for us to do do more of the same, to extend a hand of welcome without partiality? Here's how I want to encourage us to respond in the next few moments. Every Sunday we have a time in our service after the sermon where we just kind of pause and reflect for a moment. And here's the things that I want you reflecting on, three things. First, if you're here this morning and you are harboring any kind of resentment or bitterness towards a brother or sister here, what I would say that this passage commands of you is a mutual recognition that she's a sister or he's a brother just as much as you are. And that mutual recognition, like what's seen in this passage, Ask God to squash that bitterness and to provide reconciliation between you and that individual. Here's the second way I'd ask you to to pray and to think. Would you ask God to create in you a deep, deep humility from your salvation in Christ? A deep recognition that God shows no partiality and that it would create an allergic reaction to entitlement in your own heart. And pray for our church to be that way, a church humbled by the gospel, The gospel tells us that we are all fallen and that we are all equally in need of forgiveness and it's not about the good works threshold that we can cross eventually. It's about owning our sin and receiving God's mercy in Christ. Would you ask God to create in you a deep humility from the reality of the gospel? And then finally, if you're here and you are not a Christian, the thing that I would encourage you to think about is belief. What does it mean for you to repent and believe the gospel and receive the message of Christ with faith? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you on the basis of your work for us we do not stand before you on any work of our own. All of our efforts, all of our, all of our righteousness, all of our good deeds are burned up before you. And we do pray that you would create in us a deep humility. An awareness that I am the chief of sinners. That, is, is, that my sin required Christ's death for me as much as anyone's sin. Would you discomfort us from the, the truth of your non-partiality? Would you unsettle us and shake us out of our overfamiliarity with the gospel and with your word? Would you discomfort us then to comfort us, to remind us that you are a God of grace and you are a God of great mercy, whose mercy triumphs over his judgment? And then, God, would you make us a people who are non-partial, who are indiscriminate in our hospitality? We pray that this church building with these four walls, with, that, that it would indeed make it make what we've said and, and, and what we've been over these last few years as a church. we pray that it would make it more true of us, that we would be more hospitable and more welcoming, and that we would, would love one another more and, and with more intensity and that we would outdo one another in showing honor and love. And then God I pray for anyone who's in our midst who is drug here this morning maybe through gritted teeth. And we pray that something about the fellowship here, the things that we've sung, the things that we've read, God, we pray that your spirit would use that and that it would open their eyes to belief. God, we thank you for your grace, and we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen.